0: Have you ever had the experience of doing something with the intention to help someone only to have your motives called into question? It is deflating, demoralizing, discouraging, and makes us want to do anything but continue to help. You seek to do something that seems innocent and could in no way hurt your character, and someone else, usually not the person you were trying to help, opines on why you are really doing it, to be seen doing good, to gain an advantage, or even for less savory motives. Similarly, if you give someone a gift and they shove it away so that it breaks, are you likely to go out and buy them a replacement gift? The saying, once bitten, twice shy, seems very appropriate and wise in such a situation. We are reluctant to put ourselves in positions where our generosity is turned into a weapon against us. What about if you witness a true display of selflessness and heroism? If someone then says, I don't know why you think so highly of so-and-so, do you wonder if you saw the same thing? Sometimes people are so tuned to see anything other than goodness and mercy that even blindingly obvious examples of such things become objects of attack rather than celebration and commemoration. I pose these three scenarios as a way to begin to explain what is going on in the episode where Jesus warns the crowd about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have not experienced this, but I have spoken to many Christians who did not understand this teaching, many who were terribly concerned that they may have already committed the unpardonable sin. Too often, the emphasis of this teaching has been on the existence of the unpardonable sin while neglecting to teach what it is. Even if you haven't dealt with this uncertainty or serious concern before, understanding what it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and why it is unpardonable is useful in pursuing right worship of the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. In order to understand this teaching rightly, we need to listen to the whole of what Mark is telling us. The Gospel reading today starts after the section of the text where we first hear about Jesus calling the twelve apostles. Jesus has just returned home to Capernaum from the mountaintop where he has spent time instructing and preparing the twelve for their ministry as apostles. The people soon hear that he has returned home and quickly swell in crowds to where he is preaching the press becomes such that there is hardly any opportunity to eat. Jesus' family hears of this and seek to take him under their authority because they believe him to be out of his mind, crazy, unwell. I didn't notice until preparing this sermon, but the text does not resolve this conflict before moving on. Seemingly, while his family is trying to seize Jesus, Scribes from Jerusalem arrive and start telling the crowd that he is in league with Satan, either because he is possessed by a demon or because he has authority from Satan. Seeing that these two conflicts with Jesus, first between Jesus and his family and second between Jesus and, his, and the scribes, seem to occur simultaneously, I think it is reasonable to understand that his response is likewise addressing both groups. Speaking in parables... Jesus demonstrates the clear folly of the scribes. What does Satan gain by enabling Jesus to cast out demons? Why should the tormentor and chief adversary of mankind allow even one person to be freed from demonic oppression? Speaking to both the scribes and his family, he says that in order for a strong man to be defeated and his house robbed, the strong man has to be bound. The strong man and the house he protects are figures for Satan and the world that was under his erstwhile authority prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. This parable is telling all who listen to it that the works Jesus is performing are all part of the action of binding the strong man, preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, and other acts which seem strange and concerning are all active steps in reducing and inevitably removing Satan's power in the world. It also tells that Jesus' mission is the utter defeat of the strong man and plundering his goods, the souls of those who were once bound by sin to decay and death. It is after this last parable that we get the teaching about the unpardonable sin. First, however, is the good news that every sin apart from the unpardonable sin will be forgiven. All sins and blasphemies that are not blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has committed the unpardonable sin. His family, in believing him to be crazy, may have technically blasphemed against the Son of God. If so, he speaks of their forgiveness. The scribes, however, blaspheme not just against Jesus, but against the operation of the Spirit by whom Jesus did miracles and cast out demons. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How does this relate to Jesus saying that he is the only way to the Father, and apart from him no one can be saved? How does that work with all the sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter? Mark tells us that the reason Jesus spoke about this unpardonable sin is because the scribes were saying that Jesus' power to cast out demons was from an unclean spirit. From this we know that at its root, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is accounting the works of God to the work of Satan. This is not a vain, flippant, or ignorant act. It is a willful judgment made in the face of evidence that God is at work. The same crowds that saw Jesus casting out demons also saw him heal the sick, give, sick to the, give sight to the blind, and give the lame strength to walk. Last week was Trinity Sunday, so it seems appropriate to examine the gravity of the scribe's sin from that perspective. Two of the three persons of the Trinity are subjects of the scribe's scorn, derision, and blasphemy the son, whom they rejected because he did not appear in a way they thought proper, and the Holy Spirit, whom they maligned in their quest to defame the Son. In rejecting both the Son whom they had seen, and the Spirit whose works testify about the Son, the scribes reveal that they reject the Father, since whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father also. It might be that those who slandered, mocked, insulted, tortured, and eventually killed Jesus could have later repented and come to his kingdom. However, the scribes who declared that he performed works by the power of demons and unclean spirits doomed themselves before they ever had a thought to lay hands against him. They, more than all of the Jews, should have known the signs that God would do among his people and instead of welcoming him, they saw him as a rival. They lied about the Spirit of God and called the Spirit evil. As important as it is to rightly understand what the unpardonable sin is, it is also important to understand what it means that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. If there is only one sin that is unpardonable, then why is it that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Why can't I just keep going on as I was before? As long as I don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, I should be pardoned, right? The key is that something being pardonable does not mean that it is yet pardoned. To be pardoned, I must seek forgiveness. If I am convicted of a crime, being told that there is a route to be pardoned, and believing that if I follow that route, I will be set free, but I do nothing to obtain the mercy of the court, it would be better for me to have never known forgiveness was possible. It is the same for one who knows they are sinful, hears the truth, even acknowledges that Jesus might be more than a mere human being, but does not seek to follow his commands. I know that pardoning is possible through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If I ignore either the message that forgiveness is a possibility or the instructions for how to obtain forgiveness, then I don't view the message or the messenger worth my attention or effort. As a convicted criminal, I might, after a time, come to my senses and submit the proper forms and evidence to the authorities to set in motion the process to obtain freedom. Unfortunately, It is all too often the case that irreverence is the seed of blasphemy. Each time that I react with irreverence to the Holy Spirit by setting aside and ignoring the call to obedience and faith, a future unpardonable blasphemy becomes more and more likely. In this way, continual rejection of the gospel leads to an eventual and irrevocable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Only the grace of God can rescue any of us from that eventual last step off the cliff. But how much better it would be if we just trust the message and the messenger in the first place. What is it that we should take away from this gospel lesson today? Surely none of us would confuse the Holy Spirit with an unclean spirit. If we have been baptized and take the gifts of the Lord's table regularly, then aren't we answering Christ's and the Holy Spirit's invitation for grace and mercy? What does this mean for us today? For me, the biggest takeaway is the warning against becoming too familiar and comfortable with religion at the expense of humility and worship. No matter how religious and pious you are, it is never too late to slip into either irreverence or an idolatry of forms and functions rather than right worship of the God who saves us. It wasn't the tax collectors, drunkards, sexually promiscuous, and other sinners who blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It was the chief learned men of the Jewish religion. The perils that existed for the scribes and Pharisees exist for us as well. Treating the holy things of God lightly will eventually lead to a heart that is ready to irrevocably blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets about the Christ. The Spirit is the one who gives us words to speak when we need to pray. We receive grace from God by the means of the Holy Spirit. We who have received this grace and know the love of God communicated by His Spirit Find even the possibility of calling the Spirit evil a foreign and unthinkable prospect. If we believe the words of Jesus about himself and the working of the Spirit, receive the sacraments in faith, and continually seek the leading and renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit, then I do not believe that we are in any imminent danger of committing the unpardonable sin. The only admonition I give in this case is to watch and guard against the beginning of irreverence. To that end, this week I encourage you to slow down during your prayers. If you pray the offices, I suggest spending special time with the psalms and the canticles. These are often where we see clear examples of the Spirit bursting forth in the praises and prayers of our forebears in the faith. It might also be helpful to spend time reading the Scripture slowly, prayerfully, listening for the Spirit to speak to you. There's a practice called Lectio Divina, which is useful for this, and anyone can do this with little preparation. Father Ben or I would be happy to talk with anyone who is interested in trying this practice out. May we grow in reverence and love for the Holy Spirit and follow the Spirit's leading in all we do. Amen.